Pelosi and the progressives. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. This has been an interesting time for Democrats, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She has been able to get some legislation through the US House of Representatives, but she still faces some significant challenges from the left flank of the Democratic Party, including her own reelection. And joining us on this day is Shahed Buttar. He is running as a progressive challenger to Nancy Pelosi in the Democratic primary. And Shahed, good of you to join us today. Thanks for being on. Why the challenge to Nancy Pelosi? First of all, I see the Democratic Party being led by a figure who has long supported Republican priorities from relentless runaway military spending, as we saw pass the House just last night, to repeated tax cuts for the wealthy of the sort that were included in the Build Back Better bill. Every signature Republican priority over the last generation has been one ultimately shared by the leader among House Democrats. And for a city this progressive, to be represented by someone as decidedly moderate, and I dare say even conservative as Pelosi when evaluated on the basis of her policy record. I'm very eager for our city to have more sincere representation committed and aligned to with our city's proud values. You hear from a lot of more centrist Democrats or conservative Democrats, if you want to call them that. Well, look, look. In addition to the stuff that may help benefit, you know, centrists and Republicans, progressives also stand to benefit when Build Back Better actually gets through. Is there anything wrong with that argument? Well, there's parts of the Build Back Better agenda that absolutely resonate with progressive concerns. For instance, the recognition of human infrastructure and the childcare provisions, for instance, those are longstanding progressive priorities that centrists have long impeded. As we look at the Build Back Better bill, the thing that sticks out to me like a sore thumb is the fact that the second largest line item in the entire agenda is a tax break for 13% of tax filers. And it's not even just the top 13%, it's the top 13% in high tax states, which basically reduces to Nancy Pelosi and her wealthy friends and donors. And that is a example not only of a prioritization of a conservative policy goal, but I dare say it represents unapologetic corruption. And it's disturbing that it has not been the object of more focused media attention, but the idea that we are spending five times as much on tax breaks for the wealthy than we are for childcare reveals what that package is ultimately about. The devils are in the details and the details here matter and they haven't been nearly enough the focus of conversation. In addition to calling it corruption, you've also called it a conflict of interest for Speaker Pelosi. What can be done or what should be done in an ideal situation? I mean, it doesn't seem like she's really said, hey, I embrace these personally. It just seems to be that, well, this is this is how the legislation ended up. Well, she did take a particular role in shoehorning it into the Build Back Better bill. It was a relatively late insertion. And the precise locus of the corruption is precisely the fact that her personal interests have not been disclosed. It's not merely the case that the repeal of the SALT cap, this is the state and local tax deduction. There was a cap on it previously and the Build Back Better bill lifted that cap. And it's not merely the case that lifting that cap disproportionately benefits wealthy tax filers in blue states in particular. Nancy Pelosi is the seventh wealthiest member of a Congress of millionaires. She herself is poised to personally profit from the repeal of the salt cap in the same way, for instance, that her family pocketed funds that were dedicated to the Paycheck Protection Program in the same way that she has benefited from other tax cuts for the wealthy. The very first thing that has to be done here, I think is for the press to observe the personal financial interests of wealthy career and even dynasty politicians and report on those conflicts. 
we can't rely on dynasty politicians to necessarily mind their conflicts. It's one reason why we have a First Amendment and a freedom of the press to see the press declining to leverage it to shine a light on instances of obvious corruption at scale is a crisis for democracy that stretches, I think, beyond the Democratic Party. And it ultimately implicates press, press ethics as well. Shahid, what has it been like running against Nancy Pelosi? I mean, she's obviously a very popular Democrat in many quarters. San Francisco would seem to be perhaps more hospitable towards a progressive challenge. But what has your experience been like? I have faced in running against Nancy Pelosi as a socialist in San Francisco, the most concerted, unapologetic, and I dare say dangerous examples of white supremacy that I have ever encountered. And I've lived just to make this explicit in St. Louis, Missouri, in Chicago, in San Francisco for over a decade each. I've lived in Washington, DC. I've spent time living for weeks at a time everywhere from Houston to Salt Lake City. Not a single one of those cities in any of them have I encountered anything like what I have here in San Francisco. And I Give us some specific examples. What specifically have you experienced there? Particularly journalists suppressing whistleblowers, exposing racist election disinformation fabricated by Democratic Party operatives specifically to insulate Pelosi by misleading voters and ultimately undermining the integrity of a federal election. The thing I would note here just to tie these two parts of the conversation together, Nancy Pelosi has served in Washington in Congress since 1987 and not once in the last 34 years has she ever debated an opponent. A week after the San Francisco Chronicle published a front page story above the fold noting that Pelosi is ignoring calls for a debate. I faced the first of a series of escalating expanding smears all fabricated all ultimately debunked. The city's last black newspaper, the San Francisco Bayview published an article describing it as a civic lynching that was orchestrated by Democrats to insulate the party leader. And that is an example of not just white supremacy, but to draw a tighter circle around it. I faced anti-Muslim bigotry here in San Francisco orchestrated by Democrats far worse than what Democrats have seen fit to criticize from Lauren Boebert. The comments between from Boebert to Ilhan were an offensive joke and I've, I am also offended by it. I am frankly more offended by serious accusations orchestrated by Democrats to mislead voters and undermine election integrity. And you believe that smear campaign directly involved Speaker Pelosi, a smear campaign, a disinformation of voters, all of that directly tied to her? Not directly. The way I've described this is that the incentives were created at the top. This is specifically the DCCC blacklist, which Pelosi put in place in the last cycle to basically make staff and consultants who worked for candidates like me challenging entrenched incumbents. They were ineligible for further work with the party having worked for someone like me. So the DCCC blacklist that Pelosi put in place created a systematic incentive for anyone who had worked for me and then did no longer like the people who smeared me to orchestrate these kinds of attacks. Now it wasn't just an incentive from the top, the orchestration of these lies which have been debunked and and exposed to the public. Investigative journalists at both The Intercept and Salon and the SF Bayview have revealed the orchestration of this plot. The suppression of an Afro-Latina whistleblower who is an elected Democratic Party official. She was threatened by white Democratic Party operatives who continue to work in City Hall to this day. There were elected public officials 
who were backing these lies to score political points by smearing an immigrant, brown skinned Muslim for political purposes. And, and the part I'd wanna say here is that the political purposes of an orchestrated smear campaign render it no less racist. If anything, if we understand racism as intersecting with capitalism and militarism as Dr. King educated us, political motivations don't make a set of attacks less racist, they actually render it more racist because the point of racism is not just to promote racial hierarchy, but ultimately to entrench and insulate power. And that's exactly what the purposes of these fabrications and orchestrations were. And to, to put this another way, to smear the immigrant Muslim required also suppressing and threatening women of color who these Democratic Party operatives were disingenuously claiming to stand for. And to insulate power, insulating power is not new in politics, right? It happens in both parties where an established representative decides, okay, I'm gonna wall off any challenge. But what you're saying, it sounds like, is that this wasn't just a matter of Nancy Pelosi trying to protect her turf or trying to put down a challenge, but that she and her operatives engaged in Islamophobia to do so. Absolutely, that, she, that her operatives facilitated by the press. And this also connects the two parts of our conversation. This is a crisis not only for the Democratic Party, but it frankly reveals a profound problem with respect to press ethics and journalists being willing to give whistleblowers opportunities to correct the public record. It is particularly interesting to me that none of the white journalists who amplified the various accusations that were all ultimately found to be false, not a single one of them have updated or corrected their stories a full year later. Do you think that's personal or institutional on their part? Institutional, absolutely. I mean, I could be anyone and, and they would fabricate smears towards me. This is, this is not about the individuals at play. This is absolutely about the institutional interests that are being insulated by this demagoguery. And one reason I'm very adamant about calling it out is that Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry are being discussed in the country today widely as if they are partisan phenomena. But the fact of the matter is they are sadly bipartisan. Democrats are up to their necks in the very same things that they are thankfully calling out the GOP for. And again, if anything, the GOP's most prolific examples of it recently were decidedly more innocuous than the way that the Democratic Party has actively leveraged anti-Muslim bigotry in the service of its leaders' interests. Shahad, if Speaker Pelosi were to grant a debate and you had her on stage or in some sort of format and you had an opportunity for 30 or 40 seconds to make a statement to her, what would it be? We face profound risks in our civilization. They include a pandemic, they include a mounting global climate crisis. And I'm eager to see San Francisco represented by a voice in Washington that will prioritize dealing with those crises instead of hurling every last cent at a military industrial complex that is frankly part of the problem. Particularly when we think about the connections between militarism and climate crisis, they're in no way subtle. And between the Pentagon being the largest institutional source of carbon pollution, and our military industrial complex repeatedly waging wars for particularly fossil fuel plunder. Militarism as the record of this incumbent, the primary legacy of Nancy Pelosi is the bipartisan commitment to militarism and San Francisco deserves better. Shaheen Buhtar, he is the progressive challenger to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in the Democratic primary for the 2022 election. And Shahid, good luck to you and I appreciate you coming on. I do hope, I think it'd be enlightening to everybody if in fact she did grant you some sort of debate and you had an honest discussion of the two of you about the issues instead of some of this, uh, this other nonsense. But in any case, good luck to you Shahid and thanks for coming on. 
Thanks so much for having me, David. You got it. Abortion and politics. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. The Supreme Court has now heard the oral arguments in that Mississippi case in which Mississippi says it is against the law to have an abortion beyond 15 weeks of pregnancy. The justices are expected to deliver their ruling by the spring, perhaps late June or early July. Here to talk about that and the ramifications of it all. Max Burns is the national political columnist for the Daily Beast. Max, good of you to join the program. Do you sort of follow the tea leaves the same way as everybody else and just sort of expect that the conservative justices are going to get rid of Roe v. Wade in this case? I do, and I think that even if the justices take a more conservative approach of keeping Roe, but changing that 24 week viability window to 15 or removing it entirely, that's functionally the same thing as killing Roe versus Wade. It renders it functionally inoperable around the country, and that's a real nightmare scenario. A nightmare scenario because then you have a patchwork. It becomes up to the states, at least if nothing else is done. Each state decides for themselves whether or not they want abortion to be legalized or not. And you may have some states, including bordering each other, where it's legal in one state and not in the next. Um, what does that do politically, in your estimation? So, this is actually a nightmare for Republicans. If you notice, Republicans have been very loud about getting rid of abortion in the courts, but they're completely silent about abortion on the campaign trail. You can't drag Republicans to talk about abortion. And it's because internally their own polling shows them that getting rid of abortion upsets a majority of their voters. So, they benefit from keeping the conversation on anything except their war on abortion rights. Does that help explain perhaps why, and again, Democrats have also sometimes been reluctant to get into the abortion fight over the last couple of years. Does that explain why some of the polling suggests that a lot of Americans are simply not aware that Roe versus Wade is being threatened? Yeah, Democrats have bought this Republican lie that talking about abortion is polarizing, that it hurts Democrats. The opposite is true. We've found out from research that just came out earlier this month that when Elections hinge on the issue of abortion. Voters swing to Democrats by 71 points. No issue moves them as hard to Democrats as abortion. And that includes four in 10 Republican voters. Now, if Democrats knew that and had the confidence to go out and make elections about abortion, Republicans would have very little to defend themselves with. And that's why they're hoping Democrats stay silent. And do you see that if in fact Roe versus Wade is overturned, does that inspire in the final few months of the 2022 campaign a flood of women to be actively involved, to line up behind Democratic candidates? And does that then flip the narrative, which right now seems to be that the Democrats are in some trouble of maintaining control of the House and certainly the Senate? It does, and we know this because the main reason Democrats haven't run up bigger margins on abortion is that most American voters don't know what's happening. Only about a third of voters said that they were aware of the details of Texas's anti-abortion law that authorizes bounties on women who seek abortions. And we saw that the more voters learn about abortion laws, the less they like them and the less they like Republicans. So if we can move forward and talk about this issue, this decision will hit right at the peak of the 2022 campaign season. And it will be a momentous decision. Democrats have an opportunity here, but it's up to them to take it. And it seems like the opportunity is both politically and legislatively. Politically, obviously, because suddenly their, their base gets very energized. A lot of women voters might participate. But there's also what some Democratic lawmakers are already talking about. And that is, well, maybe the way you protect Roe, 
uh, even if the court gets rid of it, is you make it a you pass congressional legislation that yep. says no abortion is. And do you see that happening? As assuming Democrats maintain control of Congress, if they gain seats, is that the way that they essentially tackle this in terms of the law being stripped away? If that's what the court does. Yeah, I certainly hope so. I mean, it's a slam dunk for them. They already have the Women's Health Protection Act that passed the House from Judy Chu of California. It's stuck in the Senate. And now as the Supreme Court moves to get rid of abortion, Republicans are starting to get a little nervous. We saw Susan Collins come out and say, actually, she doesn't want them to do this thing she voted for them to do. She wants to protect abortion rights, but unless she's willing to get rid of the filibuster, there's no way that bill goes forward. So Democrats have a choice to make there as well. And that's so interesting you mentioned Susan Collins because she, you know, she there was a tremendous amount of pressure, correct me if I'm wrong, on her regarding a Brett Kavanaugh. And she seemed convinced that no Brett Kavanaugh would be something of a moderate, that he would protect precedent, he would protect Roe versus Wade. Well, if it turns out that he doesn't, and he's one of these votes to strike it down, it would seem like the pressure becomes enormous on Susan Collins and some of the other moderate Republican senators to say, okay, yeah, we do need to now carve out a filibuster exception specifically for abortion rights. It certainly casts into doubt Republican judgment in general. I mean, Susan Collins may be the most gullible member of the Senate. She believes anything that someone in search of power tells her. And now that we see Kavanaugh not only moving to ban abortion, but leading the charge for this state's rights approach by which half the country would immediately ban abortion after this decision. I think we can safely say Susan Collins doesn't know what she's talking about. And the best thing she can do right now is try and repair this damage. It feels like there is perhaps another Republican civil war that's brewing. And then I think about it in terms of sort of the moderate Republicans versus the sort of more conservative evangelicals. And it seems like the civil war gets ripped wide open. If in fact Roe does get thrown out, and then you have a really intense battle just within the Republican Party over their identity, and perhaps even over some of the self-preservation that some of the more moderate Republicans might have. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And we see that, especially in places like Texas that have trigger laws, which essentially say if this happens and Roe is overruled, the bill banning abortion automatically happens. It's already been passed. And they did that not anticipating this would actually happen so soon. Now Republicans in sort of suburban areas with tight margins are begging these states to undo this because it will decimate them among their voters. But there's no way back now, they're stuck with it. And what has been the, I mean, when you have these model Republicans, whether in state legislatures saying, hey, we need to pull back on these laws to ban abortion, or whether it's a moderate Republicans and US Senate and the House saying, this is not the kind of fight we need. We don't want to be the proverbial dog that actually catches the car because we'll get smashed here. Um, what's the reaction to those Republicans who are sort of seeing things in the way the polling that you are that say, okay, this may be what a lot of Republicans have wanted for so many years, but politically, this could be a disaster. Well, it's still largely an internal disagreement, I think, among Republicans. They're very hesitant to let this get out into a larger conversation. And the Trump Republicans, Greg Abbott in Texas and other super conservatives who are really on board for using this as a way to finally get at women's abortion rights and to really attack women are so excited. They can't wait to do this. It's this small, largely powerless minority of centrist Republicans, regular Republicans, I guess, who are 
who are at risk and no one is listening to them. So this could be something that they just cannot steer around. And speaking of steering around, you get the sense that the Supreme Court justices themselves are aware of what the ramifications may be beyond the legalities over abortion, but just in terms of the, the national political landscape and, and how titanic the shift could be depending on the ruling. Yeah, the Democrats on the on the bench, the more liberal side, are very clear. Sonia Sotomayor said the court will never overcome the stench of what it was going to do. And even Chief Justice Roberts is concerned, has tried to moderate to maybe the smallest possible ruling. But when you have both Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett putting forward very suspect arguments for a complete removal of Roe, you have to assume that now that they have the votes, they're not that interested in John Roberts' opinion on moderation. Does this also perhaps seep down to the local level? And I think about it in terms of you know Republicans have done a very effective job of using things like critical race theory or vaccine or mask mandates at local school board levels to try to drive politics on a local level. Does abortion and women's rights then become the next really hot button issue on that local level where so much of politics tends to be avoided by the national media, but where so much of politics really has an impact? It is because this is at heart a local issue. And you look at places like Miami that are undergoing a lot of demographic shift. For a woman living there, if this happens, she would have to drive nearly 700 miles to get a legal abortion, assuming she has a car, assuming she can get off work because this will disproportionately affect moderate and low income people and people of color. Those are demographics that Republicans are struggling to hold. And if they lose those, it will be catastrophic for them. And that's a local message Democrats can take home today and start campaigning on. I also wonder if it's a message Democrats should be aware of given given the way Republicans have been able to successfully handle the things like the mask mandate. Say, hey, this is about our liberty and our freedom. Well, you can imagine the conversation that we all have about our own personal liberty and freedom regarding abortion rights. And why is it that, okay, you can't touch my face, but you can go ahead and have the government Get into my uterus. I mean, it's it's it seems like the the arguments and the hypocrisy that'll be thrown around in the springtime, depending on how this goes, will just be enormous. It's exactly that argument, and with the added benefit for Democrats of if enough Republicans start getting edgy about this and start hedging, they'll likely face primaries from the right, which will further divide the party, further make them spend money, and that's good for Democrats at this point. This may be one of the most mobilizing issues of the last 25 years. And it's coming at a moment Democrats direly need it. Well, I hate to put anybody on the spot about what the Supreme Court's gonna do, but Max, give us your prediction. When do you think the ruling will come? What do you think it will be? And and what will it mean in your estimation for how things play out next fall? So they're expecting this ruling early spring. My guess is if I had to, to follow my gut, and Brett Kavanaugh really seems to be driving sort of the legal mind of this. I wouldn't be surprised if he authored this decision. You will see the viability window standard erased, which will essentially clear the way for Texas to institute 15 weeks, for Mississippi to go to eight, for Arkansas to go to six, and bring challenges up that will be reaffirmed by the court every time. And that will only strengthen this march against abortion. So Congress is the only way now, and the Democrats need to act quickly. 
and is going to be a remarkable thing to watch, not only in terms of the legislation, not only in terms of the court ruling and the legalities of it all, but also the the politics. And sometimes it feels a little bit strange to talk about the political ramifications when so many women's lives will be directly yeah. affected by what the Supreme Court does. But that's in fact how change gets made is through politics and through the political system. Max Burns, he's the national political correspondent for the Daily Beast. Max, good of you to join us. Great to see you as always, and thank you. Thanks for having me. You got it, and that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield, John Skip Velocco, Gina Kim, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching, we'll see you next time.